a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Yes, this is where the wrong thinkers gather. Monday through Friday. A little brief get-together. Talk about what's what. Talk smack on the government and people who want to put their boot on the back of our necks. Pretty standard stuff, really. Actually, for those who are freedom curious or maybe just kind of testing the waters to see, you know, I don't know if I like the, uh, I don't care if it's a right boot or a left boot. I don't want a boot on the back of my neck. Yeah, I get where you're coming from. And if you're, if you're kind of new to testing the waters and exploring the descent of uh, the official narrative and everything else out there, welcome. I hope you find that uh, this is a place, I'm not going to say a safe place, because frankly, the truth can be a little disturbing. It's kind of scary where it leads sometimes. But once you've had a taste for truth, it's pretty hard to settle for anything else, especially from the standpoint of, you know, if uh, some people prefer comfortable lies, but I don't know, once you get used to it, uh, straight up truth with no sugar coating, that's a pretty good thing. By the way, I haven't cornered the market on truth or anything like that. I'm just a guy who makes a very sincere effort to try to find it, and then I try to disseminate it, and what you do with it is entirely up to you. I thought we would start with something kind of positive today. Do you mind if I do that? I know there's always a lot of bad news. We'll get to it eventually. It's like the broccoli sitting on your plate. I'll get to it after a while, but I'm going to start with something a little positive, specifically bacon. Got a great article here from John Miltimore. This is from a couple of years ago, actually. From the Foundation for Economic Education, 15 Economic, Historical, and Health Facts Against Bacon. Now, I don't know if it was because of the subject of this column or if it was the fact he used a picture of Ron Swanson eating a piece of bacon, but uh, it, it immediately captured my attention. And John Miltimore says, Many may not realize that thousands of Americans annually celebrate National Bacon Day every December 30th, and honoring a, ba- a breakfast staple, rather, with a day of, of observance, might seem odd, but he says bacon is not your typical food. The tasty snack has become a cultural obsession and a fixture of American pop culture. Who can forget eight-year-old King Curtis on ABC's Wife Swap running away when he was told he couldn't eat bacon? Or Ron Swanson, after being served a rather meager-looking steak, ordering a waiter, just bring me all the bacon and eggs you have. So to help you better understand the majesty of bacon, John says we've compiled a list of 15 economic, historic, and health facts about this wondrous food. See, to me, this is good news, so that's why I'm sharing it with you. I hope it puts a smile on your face. Number one, this is impressive. Americans spend $5 billion on bacon annually. America's currently in the midst of a decades-long trend of bacon mania. In 2018, bacon amounted for $4.9 billion in U.S. sales. That was up from $4.7 billion the previous year, and an increase of more than 20% from 2012. Now, remember, this article was two years ago. Inflation has kicked it up considerably. I don't know how much. I'm, I do watch the price of bacon. Specifically, I, I, watch, uh, I like to stock up on the bacon ends and pieces. And, you know, I mean, bacon purists, no, 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 it's got to be the thick slabs, you know, perfect slices. Well, you know, whatever floats your boat. But uh, I have been watching the price, you know, over the last couple of years creep up. And uh, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's probably a good 30 to 50% higher than it was before. 
I still buy it, though. I mean, come on. What's a, what's a house without bacon? Number two, research suggests there are cognitive benefits of eating bacon. Ooh, do tell. Most health research focuses on bacon's negative impact. <laughs> Typical, right? However, some research shows positive health outcomes associated with bacon consumption. A University of North Carolina study, for example, found that choline, a micronutrient in bacon, is key to healthy brain development in unborn babies. You got that, moms? Now you have an excuse to eat bacon. Number three, bacon is environmentally friendly. Now, Americans don't appear to need more reasons to eat bacon, says John Miltimore, beyond its deliciousness, of course. But here's, here's some that they might want to explore. Turns out bacon and pork have a much smaller carbon footprint than beef. One recent study, for example, concluded that growing beef requires 28 times more land and 11 times more water than bacon and pork, as well as other food like eggs and chicken. Number four, now again, we have to we have to factor in inflation, but John says bacon is 86% cheaper than it was 100 years ago. In 2014, Fox News reported bacon prices hit an all a new all-time high after reaching a whopping $6.11 per pound. As bacon lovers worldwide already knew, the price, which soon fell when consumers and producers adjusted, was abnormally high, up 40% from just two years before. However, bacon really wasn't more expensive than ever. As Marion Tupi has shown, the price of bacon when adjusting for wages and inflation is about 86% less today than it was 100 years ago. Think about that the next time you're at the grocery store, selecting a package of delicious bacon and give thanks to your free market economy. Now, if Fox News had used real prices instead of nominal prices, they would have found those all-time high prices were still a fraction of the real cost of bacon, say, in 1919, when the nominal price was 53 cents a pound and the average nominal wages were 25 cents an hour. Okay, that puts it into perspective. Number five, bacon first appeared in China thousands of years ago. So Americans may love their bacon, but the savory snack predates the discovery of the new world by thousands of years. Food historians say salted pork belly first appeared in China around 1500 B.C. Number six, Americans eat 18 pounds of bacon annually. That's just slightly less than your average car tire, which coincidentally looks like I'm wearing around my waist at the moment. Number seven, the word bacon has German and Frankish roots. As previously mentioned, bacon was popular in China and later in the Roman world, but they didn't call it bacon, of course. The Romans called it patasso. And I don't know what the Chinese called it, but he says in the Middle Ages, Germanic people began referring to cured pork as bak meaning the back of a pig. The Franks adopted this to baco, which evolved to bacon in English. Number eight, this is the really good news. Bacon is really nutritious. Bacon's high in saturated fats and contains additives such as nitrates and nitrites that cause concern among scientists who fear it could be linked, linked to gastric cancer. However, overall, bacon is a hearty, nutritious food packed with essential vitamins and nutrients. As Healthline points out, it contains vitamins B1, B2, B3, B5, B6, and B12, 37 grams of high-quality animal protein, 89% of the recommended dietary allowance for selenium, 53% of the RDA for phosphorus, plenty of minerals such as iron, magnesium, zinc, and potassium. In fact, this is number nine. There are fewer calories in three slices of bacon than you'll find in a can of pop. So if you're looking for some justification, there you have it. A serving of bacon is three average slices, three average sized slices, I should say. 
Each serving, the San Francisco Chronicle reports, contains 7.5 grams of protein, 9 grams of fat, 3.8% of or 3.8 of which are saturated, 30 milligrams of cholesterol, 435 milligrams of sodium, and 120 calories. In the meantime, a 12-ounce can of Pepsi, which has 0 grams of protein, but has 150 calories. Number 10. A serving of bacon accounts for about one-fifth of the recommended daily fat. So to put that 9 grams of fat figure that was listed above into perspective, the RDA of fat is 44 to 77 grams per day. That would mean three pieces of bacon counts for at most 20% of your daily recommended fat intake. Now, sure, the saturated fat intake is higher than one would like, but it's hardly off the charts. Number 11. 70% of bacon is consumed at breakfast. Bacon's popular in restaurants where it's used in a variety of ways by chefs on sandwiches and burgers, pasta and appetizers. Still, it remains predominantly a breakfast food. In fact, 70% of all bacon is consumed at breakfast, surveys show. Number 12. A majority want to make bacon America's national food. All right. I'll get in line there. America's enthusiasm for bacon goes well beyond pseudo-churches and fringe academies. A survey conducted in 2014 by Smithfield Foods, the world's largest pork supplier, found 65% of Americans would make bacon America's national food. By the way, number 13, I don't know if you've heard of Camp Bacon, but there is a bacon academy in the United States. It's held annually in Ann Arbor, Michigan, showing bacon enthusiasts how to, uh, take, how to cook, how to learn about all things bacon. If you think that's crazy... Well, some Americans worship bacon. There is the United Church of Bacon. Now, I don't know if uh, that's, you know, we're starting to tread on some thin ice here, but number 15, the World Health Organization says bacon can cause cancer, but you got to keep it in mind that there's relative risk. So for every healthy person eating bacon every day raises your overall risk of colon cancer from something like 5% to 6%. I don't know about you, but as I weigh the risks and all the other stuff and all the heart medicine I'm dumping on my food every time I go to eat, that sounds like a risk I could live with, at least until I can't. And in the meantime, you know, I get to enjoy some delicious bacon, so I'm having a hard time seeing the downside here. It's all about trade-offs, John Miltimore says. I'll have a link to his article in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Yes, the 15 economic, historical, and health facts about bacon. Now that's a positive way to get things started today. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. As you know, garagedoorproservices.com is one of my sponsors. I've got a link in my show notes. Also, we'll just tell you, you can go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com, to learn everything you need to know about a company that installs services and repairs garage doors, both commercially and residentially. For all the good people living in the St. George, Utah area, Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City, You're already fortunate to live in a very beautiful corner of the world known as color country. But you're also very fortunate to have the pros from Garage Door Pros right there at your fingertips. Call them at 435-525-2773 or jump online at garagedoorproservices.com. Well, I'm watching very closely 
the battle over free speech. And I'm becoming more and more convinced this is the new front line in that eternal battle between compulsion and freedom. That's something a lot of folks could miss, partly because we're busy or we're worried about other things. There's cultural issues and whatnot. But uh, it's hard to overstate how important freedom of speech is, how it's tied to freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of association. Your ability to think what you wish to think rather than what you're told to think, it's really important. And, of course, you can also tell by how many alarm bells are going off for the people who want to suppress dissent and and control what people are allowed to think and to shift the narrative this way or that way instead of letting people decide for themselves. James Howard Kunstler has a great piece on uh, Lou Rockwell today. It's called The Alarm Bells Go Off. And he says, Twitter execs were regularly meeting with the FBI over what to censor. Twitter's censorship was almost 100% aligned with the Dem Party, as in Democrats. Twitter's chief censors were deranged ideologues abusing their power over our discourse to silence dissent. This is actually a quote from Glenn Greenwald. And and here's a, a tweet someone had saved from Yoel Roth, who was, uh, I think he was one of the, the lead, um, he was one of the lead executives who was over content and, well, which ones get through and which, which points of view don't at Twitter? Why would you tweet something like this? This was clear back in 2015. Twitter will live to porn another day. Thing I just yelled loudly at work. Now, there are other, other tweets of his have, have surfaced, and, and this guy seems pretty legitimately twisted, as in sexually twisted, particularly towards young people. I don't know if he has short eyes or not, but if not, he's missing a good opportunity. Here's the startling fact of the week. James Howard Kunstler says, Twitter senior ranks of content moderators included a dozen former FBI and CIA agents and analysts who let child porn run loose all over the app while surgically removing any utterance contradicting the government's claim that mRNA vaccines are safe and effective, not to mention the effort this elite crew expended against anyone objecting to the woke's, uh, the woke left's race and gender hustles. Wouldn't you like to know how much they were paid? Probably more than government work. Here's another awful reality. Better fasten your seatbelts. What also emerged in the tweet record of Yoel Roth, the company's chief censor, former head of trust and safety, begins to look like a gay mafia assault on the collective American psyche. Having gained official federal government sanction and protection, a statistically tiny homosexual demographic left in charge of the country's main public forum has been out for revenge against their perceived enemy, political conservatives. Americans disinclined to join the cheerleading for drag queen story hours, minor attracted persons, transsexuals in the military, and other LGBTQ cultural pranks. In the process, he says, the gay mafia running the public dialogue supported every lie that the government, its protector, put out to keep the deep state happy and well-fed. Shocking, I'm sure, but he says there it is. That means that the gay mafia also helped to promote the most deadly psyop in world history, the COVID-19 scare and the mass vaccination crusade that will end up killing many millions worldwide after destroying the economies of the Western Civ nations. Kunstler says the whole package looks like an attempt to turn the world upside down and inside out. Is it any wonder that so many feel the USA has gone crazy? 
Now, of course, these revelations aroused the widespread suspicion that these now-exposed nefarious operators in social media were merely tools for some murky plutocrat elite led by the likes of the WEF or Bill Gates or George Soros. Could it be that the greatest conspiracy, could that be the greatest conspiracy theory of all? More likely, he says, I hesitate to suggest, all these characters in one way or another are merely tools of history itself as the world enters the darkest days of a fourth-turning secular winter. As T.S. Eliot observed, humankind cannot bear too much reality. Thus, so many sense we live in dangerous times. Everything appears to be veering out of control, including thought itself. Disorder incites more disorder, and while all this madness is going on in-country, the U.S. government, led by the phantom president, Joe Biden, continues to prosecute its insane proxy war in Ukraine in order to antagonize Russia. Lately, the U.S. has sent drones hundreds of miles inside Russia to blow up military airfields. How is that not an escalation of hostilities? And exactly how far do the American people want their government to take this crazy project? Not a gosh darn inch further, opinion polls indicate. We're apparently not quite so insane as to welcome nuclear annihilation, and we seem to recognize what might bring it on. And so the dreadful realities of our time stand still before us, or still stand rather before us, unmoved by all the mental illness they provoke, uninterested in our excuses for behaving so badly, is there any way to face the hard facts? To incorporate them into a truth-based narrative that Western Civ can use to, recu- to, recuse it, to rescue itself rather from something that looks like suicide? Here's the kicker. James Howard Kunstler says Elon Musk alone, apart from, and in defiance of all the cowards running things in America, the corporate sellouts, the craven college presidents, the bought-off politicians, the bad-faith media fabulists, the vindictive denizens of Hollywood, is moving to inject some therapeutic truth into the American lunatic asylum. He came out pretty hot over the weekend, branding Dr. Anthony Fauci a criminal, calling for his prosecution, and promising the release of Twitter files that will demonstrate just how deceitfully the old Twitter acted in all the medical melodrama surrounding COVID-19 and the vaccines. On Sunday, Elon tweeted, Now, things get spicy. Will the reveal of all that wickedness make any impression on half the people in the country still deranged by the many previous salvos of official propaganda? Eh, Maybe not all of them. Maybe only 20%. But that should be enough to tip the consensus of opinion in the right direction. A recognition of the harm that has been done and the will to quit doing more of it. Now beyond that, even Elon has put the basic question to to America. Are you in favor of free speech or not. Especially now that you know moderating free speech is an invitation to live in lies. And James Howard Kunstler says lying all the time really does bend that old arc of history toward evil. I think Solzhenitsyn would back him up on this. Because it seems like that was one of the things that was always necessary for a totalitarian regime to to uh, survive in order for it to to exist in the first place. People had to believe official untruths. Dissent could not be tolerated. If people realize the chocolate ration has not been increased 30% or whatever it was, you know, to 30 grams, um, maybe they would rebel. Maybe they would withdraw their consent. So it was absolutely essential. Everybody has to believe. Everybody has to keep pretending. This is why Solzhenitsyn was so adamant about live, not the lie. 
And it's if you look at all the different areas where we're being required to bend the knee, yes, speak the lie, it's all good. That guy in lingerie twerking in front of your little kids, that's a good thing. You should be glad that your public library is hosting such events and keeping Kirk Cameron with his dangerous Christian ideas, you know, at arm's length. It's truly an interesting time. Sometimes I can't decide whether I want to be horrified or just in awe that, uh, wow, you know, things things are really uh, starting to pop off here, aren't they? This much I will say. I think each one of us has a role to play in terms of standing for what is true, standing for what is right, and shining a light into the darkness. Yeah, it's a little bit scary. But it's also kind of exciting to think that we live in such momentous times. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I think one of the toughest things that any one of us will ever learn to get a handle on is the very human characteristic of wanting to control others. And if you look at much of the conflict that's going on around us today, that's pretty much the, at the root of it. This is one of the thing that, things that makes politics so toxic, is that it, it's really come down to, well, we have to, we have to gain power so that we can use it to impose what we want on them, because otherwise they're going to get power and they're going to impose what they want on us. In other words, it's all about which way will the spears point. Not a very healthy way to look at things. Got a great article here. This is from the Brownstone Institute's website. And it's from Thomas Harrington. It's called The Urge to Control Others. He says, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Now, everyone of a certain age knows this saying and probably used it on one occasion or another in the course of their childhood. It was a ready psychic shield bequeathed to us by our parents and adult relatives who were much more aware than we were then of the need to erect boundaries between self and other in a world filled at times with both mindless aggression and frequent attempts by others to cow us into submitting to their will. Viewed more philosophically, it speaks to a very important idea that even when young we have, or perhaps more accurately, we can strive to have a unique and coherent identity imbued with volition, discernment, and resilience that confers on us the ability to stand up to life's many storms. He says it's an outlook that dovetails quite nicely with the basic requirements of citizenship, at least as envisioned by the founders of our constitutional system, which, to work properly, requires a widespread ability among citizens to wade out into the public square with both an individual sense of agency and the ability to absorb and respond to the opinions of others whom they do not necessarily know, like, or perhaps even respect. Yet as we look around, these once unremarkable postulates about what is needed to operate more or less comfortably and effectively in a complex society seems to be fast disappearing, replaced by a model of social comportment that presumes the vital fragility and psychic disjointedness, disjointedness rather of us all. Words, if we were to listen to the preachers and screechers of our new social ontology, not only hurt people, but break them. Irremediably, irremediably, rather. And because of this, the preachers and screechers tell us all sorts of limits need to be placed on the comportments of others by our institutions. And if those limits are not forthcoming in the time span the verbally wounded deem proper, the same people say, then uh, the aggrieved are perfectly entitled to exact justice on the misspeakers through reputational destruction and social death. 
That's really accurate, by the way. Dealing with such people is at best tedious and at worst hazardous to one's livelihood and mental health. And it's especially so when, as seems to be the case, hugely powerful entities are backing their thuggery. The first instinct of any sane person in the face of these tantrum throwers in adult bodies is to flee. Now, he says, hard as it might be, and I speak from experience, I believe we should, however, try and resist that impulse. Why? Well, for the simple fact that for all of their huffing, puffing, and excellence in the art of hurling snark, these mostly younger people are hurting. And they're hurting because, like the temper tantrum throwing infants they so often resemble, they lack the solid interpersonal boundaries and the social and linguistic skills needed to successfully negotiate what Sarah Schulman calls normative conflict. And he says a lot of that is on us, which is to say, those of us who did receive those skills and decided out of a combination of distraction, neglect, or a desire to flee from the complexities of our own familial and social pasts, not to pass them on to our children. Now, he says many of us boomers were vested by dint of our extremely fortunate historical circumstance with enormous potential stores of social authority. And we decided not to exercise a good portion of it out of a fear of replicating what our media culture, always anxious to sell us new things and disparage old ones, constantly told us were the outmoded, overly hierarchical ways of our World War II era parents. No, we were going to be different. We, as the first generation raised on the eternal youth culture of TV, were, when it came to our turn, going to let the children show the way. But did we really take the time to think of what might have been lost in this process? and its possible connection to the legions of fragile fit-throwers who now seem to inundate our media spaces? Let's go back to the term authority. He says, I suspect that for most people today, the world has a largely negative valence. However, when we look at it through an etymological lens, we can see just how distorted such a take is. Its root is the verb auger, which means to make something better or bigger through consciously taken action. For example, the word author, which is to say the creative individual par excellence, springs from the same Latin root. Understood in this way, authority becomes, among many other things, a source of wonder and inspiration. For example, without the creative authority of Ernest Hemingway and the literary persona he invented of the young American who learned to bridge cultural gaps by learning the languages of others with colloquial precision, I doubt I would have ever thought of pursuing the career I did. And he says, without an understanding of certain family members, long battles to achieve authority in their fields of expertise, I doubt I could have made it through the often dispiriting maze of grad school. An increasing number of therapists and cognitive scientists maintain that our sense of personal identity, as well as our understanding of reality, are essentially narrative in form. And this leads to an important question. What happens to those who have never closely observed or been told about the creative, loving, and liberating side of authority when it comes their time to begin authoring a life? What happens to those young who've never been seriously tasked by someone who did take on the arduous task of becoming authoritative to do the same? What happens, he says, I would argue, is what's happening with so many young people today. We are now a generation into trophies for everyone and easy A's at every step of the educational ladder. Practices that essentially insulate people with the need to enter into serious dialogue with authority. With all that, port- that portends, all that that portends in the realms of learning to overcome fear, finding and developing a wide range of appropriate expressive registers, and recognizing that while you are unique, miraculous, and full of insights, your life purview is usually dwarfed by those who've been thinking about questions and problems similar to your own for many more years. 
This compulsive shielding the young from honest encounters with authority, encounters that treat them not as fragile sparrows, but intrinsically hardy future adults, has engendered another pernicious result. The belief that parental love and, by extension, care, as dispensed by other titular figures of authority, of authority rather, is or should be mostly about the provision of comfort. Now, he says, comfort is a wonderful thing. Like most people, I crave it and hope to bestow it on those I love. But he says, as a father and a teacher, I realize that providing it is only one of my key responsibilities. Arguably more important in the long run is my ability, which of course is the function of the extent to which I have succeeded or failed in gaining possession of myself, to present a semblance of intellectual and moral coherence to my charges, meaning kids, and in this way give them a concrete outpost in space and time from which they can begin defining the struggles, one of which could very well be the experience of having had to deal with me, that will define their lives and help shape their identities. Thomas Harrington says, In this vein, I often remind people of the verb at the root of my long-held vocational title. To profess is not about controlling or necessarily even convincing others or ensuring their lives are stress-free. Rather, it's simply about sharing a little bit about what you, with all inherent limitations on what we believe to be true and or worthy of pondering in a given moment of time, and inviting students to generate a coherent, but not necessarily similar or even concordant response to what I've said. Is the game rigged? Does it contain the possibility for abuse? Well, of course, because he says, I've thought more about these things than they have and have the power to give them grades. But if, that's a big if, I've successfully sorted out the stark difference between authority as self-possession and authority as the drive to achieve dominion over others, the chances of this happening are slim. But he says, the fact remains, and I've heard it from my students' mouths, they do not trust that authority can and will be exercised in this loving and constructive way. And he says, I've got to believe that this has something to do with the fact that the comportment of many adults in their lives, often oscillated between the extremes of demand-free indulgence, everything you do is wonderful, and stark commands to produce marketable, if largely superficial, results. Better make sure you get that A. Now he says, if I'm right, is it any surprise they act the way they do when someone acting out of a good faith sense of authority, rooted in the idea of conserving and passing on the best of what he or she believes the culture has to offer, takes a stand? Based on their experience, they see it as another insincere pose that will be abandoned as soon as they up the intensity of the tantrum machine. So though it may be late, he says we must begin standing up to the tantrum machine more directly and forcefully, while at the same time demonstrating the type of loving authority that's obviously been in short supply in many of their lives. We need to do so for the preservation of our culture. He says, let's be frank. Someone who believes that hearing or reading opinions that do not precisely ratify their particular way of viewing self and other is tantamount to physical harm or extinction has a very, very tenuous sense of identity and or self-possession. What they're in effect saying is that when it comes to this thing called me, that there is no semblance of solid and autonomous self within, and they are rather a mere sum of the informational inputs delivered to their device at any given moment. Wow. I mean, look, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of psychological terms there. There's a lot there that I had to think. Okay, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to think about this for a little bit. But I think Thomas Harrington is onto something here, and I think that the avoidance thing, which really I try to avoid high drama individuals, mainly because I've been trying to be on a drama free diet for some time. But sometimes we do need to engage, and when we do so, we need to engage with love. 
So I think I'll take his advice to heart. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention lifesavingfood.com as well as monticellocollege.org. Two of my wonderful sponsors who helped to make this program possible. I also want to give a shout out to, because there have been a number of people and continue to be a number of people over the last couple of years who have been regular supporters. And it's, it's, I, I love this term, you know, hey, buy me a cup of coffee or buy me a beer, you know. And, and so there are people who, out of, out of a sense of, look, I find value in what you're doing, have become regular, you know, five or $10 monthly donors. And I, I don't tell them thank you often enough, but I really want you to know I appreciate it. It, what you're doing, uh, first of all, it, it's it's a wonderful kindness and it's very, very generous. But I also appreciate the fact that you are supporting my efforts to get out there and speak the truth to the best of my ability. Thank you. And uh, and I want you to know I don't take that for granted. I'm not pointing at my hand. Where is it? Where's the money? I just I appreciate and receive it in the spirit in which it's given. And I treat it as it's, this is a sacred trust. If you're going to send me money to support what I'm doing, I am going to use that to try to make the world a better place as best I can. That is my pledge to you. All right. So let's talk about, uh, oh, this is a good one. Let's talk about how mail-in ballots became sacred and ended up boosting Biden. This is a wonderful article by James Bovard. And this is in the New York Post. Twitter files reveal how federal censors made mail-in ballots, ballots sacred, boosting Biden. Bovard says, Elon Musk's Twitter Truth Squad is exposing the FBI's role in suppressing free speech before the 2020 election. But he says the FBI was practically a bit player in a far greater federal conspiracy to censor any American who casts doubts on the mail-in ballots that made Joe Biden the 46th president. Now, that conniving doesn't mean the 2020 election was stolen, but the bureaucratic racketeering, that was a travesty of political fair play. I think that's beautifully said. The FBI pressured Twitter to target on an October 26, 2020 tweet from a former Republican official who wrote that between 2 and five, two and 25 percent of ballots by mail are being rejected for errors. This is according to journalist Matt Taibbi. But that tweet was more accurate than the New York or the uh, New Truths federal overseers imposed. The New York City relied <clears throat> when New York City relied on mail-in ballots for a June 20th primary, up to 20% of ballots were declared invalid. The Daily News uh, <clears throat> in, labeled the primary in Wisconsin more than 20,000 primary ballots were thrown out because voters missed at least one line on the form which rendered them invalid. This is according to uh, McClatchy reporting this. In Virginia, Officials rejected almost 6% of mail-in ballots for primary elections arriving late. In Nevada, almost a quarter million ballots sent to voters were returned as undeliverable. Now, Jim's, Jim Bovard says, such problems were no surprise. A decade ago, the New York Times analysis concluded that fraud in voting by mail is vastly more prevalent than the in-person voting fraud that's attracted far more attention. Similarly, the 2005 Commission on Federal Election Reform, co-chaired by former President Jimmy Carter, warned absentee ballots remain the largest source of potential voter fraud. Yet by Election Day 2020, mail-in ballots had become immaculate. 
Now, this Orwellian triumph was due in part to censorship by proxy, as law professor Jonathan Turley put it. The Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, created in 2018 as part of the Department of Homeland Security, gave grants to several private entities that formed the Election Integrity Project in mid-2020. That project, working closely with the feds, classified 22 million tweets as misinformation and affected hundreds of millions of individual Facebook posts, YouTube videos, TikToks, and tweets. Thanks to what it bragged of as huge regulatory pressure from government per a Foundation for Freedom Online report last month. Almost two-thirds of Biden's votes came from absentee or mail-in ballots, and he won owing to 43,000 votes in three swing states. Democrats exploited the COVID pandemic to push through electoral changes that opened the floodgates to unverified mail-in ballots. The censorship focus was always and consistently foremost targeted at speech casting doubt on mail-in ballots, FFO reported. That targeted effort devastated the ability of concerned citizens to pressure their state representatives to take legal action on changing voting procedures to prevent fraud. Some states like Michigan send absentee ballots to all voters, violating the Constitution's election clause, which specifies that state legislatures made rules for federal elections. Rather than the traditional scrutiny for mail-in ballots and a ballot reject rate up to 20%, many locales defaulted to validating practically any piece of paper with a mark as a bona fide ballot. A month after the election, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton complained in a brief to the Supreme Court about the unconstitutional relaxation of ballot integrity protections in Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania election laws. U.S. Civil Rights Commissioner Christian Adams noted that the Democrats succeeded in tossing out state laws related to absentee ballot verification, deadlines, and a whole range of laws all in the name of COVID. By and large, GOP efforts in court failed. It was a courtroom bloodbath that created vulnerabilities across the system. Bovard says federal agencies and grantees intervened with social media to suppress any speech that cast doubt on any kind of election process, outcome, or integrity issues, which made all conservative and populist criticism of the administration of the election pre-banned five months in advance of Election Day, FFO reported. Isn't that something? Stifling controversies made it much easier for Democrats and their media allies to sanctify Biden's victory. Now, none of this proves that the 2020 election was stolen, and Trump and his great Kraken team made plenty of wild claims after the election. But James Bovard says congressional and other investigators must expose all the federal efforts to squelch free speech in 2020. Full disclosure of past abuses is the best way to avoid unreliable voting procedures and to prevent Washington from tainting the 2024 election. Oh man, I like the way this guy thinks. I've got a link to his article in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Well worth your time. James Bovard is always a good source to consider on what's going on. All right, one final note. This is, uh, this is the danger of allowing ourselves to become accustomed to the new normal that's being forced upon us. It's an article from John Dale Dunn, published on AmericanThinker.com. Recognizing America's deep problems allows for radical change for the better. Now, he says, Glenn Elmers, a highly credentialed research fellow at the conservative Claremont Institute, is trying to move conservative intellectuals from constantly ruminating about the problems with the American system to being more proactive about pushing workable solutions. And that means recognizing that some problems are intractable, and that only an ideological counter-revolution will lead to change. 
And conservatism is no longer enough. Elmers began the work of convincing people about the need for action, not navel-gazing. Possibly in response to pushback to that article, Elmers published Hard Truths and Radical Solutions, in which he essentially doubles down, warning only by confronting the most uncomfortable truths about our lost Republican heritage. Will we summon the necessary courage and strength to fight for its recovery? So Elmers asserts with good evidence that the Constitutional Republic is moribund, it no longer exists, and that the rot has produced a political environment that is now unrelated to longstanding belief in a government of, by, and for the people. What remains is a, an elite socialist autocracy. And he says, I would add that Elmers ignores that the American people are no longer committed to a constitutional republic operating with the consent and will of a properly informed citizenry that knows about the essentials of good representative politics. Americans are drifting left, giving up vigorous citizenship and becoming sheeple. Certainly, Elmers is correct to say that elections no longer reflect the will of some people. However, he ignores how socialist and Marxist ideas have gradually and effectively infiltrated America producing an ideological shift that turned Americans into their worst enemies, shackled by complacency and compliance. Half the American electorate has been ideologically reset to accept an oligarch, an elite-dominated socialist polis, and and to condemn traditional conservative Americans as enemies of the new woke progressivism. Basically, by carrying on with the retail politics and accepting the current situation as normal, Elmer says people on the right are now legitimizing and strengthening their enemies. And John Dale Dunn says he's right to point out that there is enough of a veneer of self-government that many will hesitate to act, even if they have dissatisfactions and justified fears. He concludes we should not go uh, tit-for-tat with the Democrats on election cheating because the ends don't justify illegal means. Ultimately, Elmers asserts that the moral high ground around which we must rally is defined by natural rights derived from natural law. Only in that way can we save the republic we love. Now, natural rights and natural law, those are pretty heavy topics for people who are not familiar with them. You ask someone, hey, can you define what natural rights are? Or can you define what natural law is? Most people are going to just sit there with a blank look on their face. Duh, I don't know. I find it helpful to remember that your natural rights are what limit government's power over you. Natural law are those laws that uh, precede and remain in effect whether government is there or or not. They're superior to man-made law because they came before it. Does that make sense? This is The Brian Hyde Show.